go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we reopen your holy word, we ask you for much grace to hear it effectually. For your saints to their sanctification and for sinners to their conversion to Christ. We therefore pray, blessed Father, that your word will run and be glorified. That nothing will hinder it, nothing will encumber it. For anyone here today to hear it in truth, to receive it, to yield to it all that they are for the sake of all that Jesus our Lord is. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you this morning to take the word of God and let's turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 40 to verse 52. Verses 40 to 52 of John chapter 7. title of this morning's message is Christ the Divider. Christ the Divider. Beginning at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so reads the infallible and errant authoritative and sufficient word of the living, eternal God. At the edge of the Great Plains is a mountain range that divides the United States. When Lewis and Clark sought to to traverse the continent, this was the great obstacle that had to be overcome, dividing the east and west coasts. This mountain range we know as the Rocky 
mountains, which form what we know and call the Continental Divide, so that all streams to their west flow to the Pacific Ocean and all to the east flow to the Atlantic. Well, the Continental Divide is to the United States, Jesus Christ is to the human race. Like the Rocky Mountains protruding up the sky, the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ divides, and from Him the two streams of humanity flow in opposite directions. Some people, of course, like to pretend otherwise, saying that Jesus is the model of religious tolerance. But Jesus Himself said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The fact is that Jesus was and is the great divider of men. But it is who he is as God's eternal son made flesh and his exclusive claims as man's only hope of eternal redemption that set sinners at odds no matter who they are or where they come from. And such a division among men is what we see in our present text from John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. These verses form the end of John 7, but in the context of the immediate reaction of several different people who have just heard what is perhaps the greatest gospel invitation given in concentrated form from the very lips of the Lord Jesus himself. In verses 37 and 38, we read that on the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Following this, in the beginning of verse 40, the Apostle John records, When they heard these words... So on the heels of this redemptive invitation Jesus gives, how do the people respond? What do we we see as to the reaction of the various people within earshot of our Lord's gracious call to receive him as the fountain of living waters? Well, answering this question will be the focus of our study, which we will consider from three different perspectives. First, there was the crowd in their confusion. Second, there were the guards in their curiosity. And third, there were the Pharisees in their contempt. So to begin with, we'll see there was the crowd in their confusion. Reading verses 40 through 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. In these first five verses, John records four different initial reactions which seem to represent the crowd at large who have just heard the amazing invitation Of Jesus our Lord. What each of these reactions can boil down to overall is utter confusion. But it is confusion centered chiefly on just 
who this rabbi is from Galilee. In the first place, there were those apparently willing to accept a portion of Jesus' claims. In verse 40, we read that some of the people said, this really is the prophet. By identifying Jesus as the prophet, they were connecting him to the prophecy foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses declared to Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This promise prophet is, of course, the promised Messiah. But in the first century, the Jews lost that meaning of this prophecy and attached it to a prophet who would come as a forerunner to the Messiah. And this is the application these Jews had in mind when referring to Jesus as the prophet. This means they weren't seeing him for who he really is. They believed him to be sent by God. They believed him to be an obvious good and special man. But he wasn't the Christ of the living God. And he therefore was certainly not the son of the living God. These Jews remained in unbelief as they asserted Jesus to be something he really wasn't. In the second place, there were other Jews in the crowd who actually affirmed that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 41, we read others said, this is the Christ. But while they gave a truthful affirmation concerning who Jesus really is, yet they failed to follow out the proper and right consequences of their confession. Understand this, beloved. Confessing the right thing about Jesus isn't enough to prove saving faith. It is not. There must be action married to the confession, wherein if you really believe what you're asserting Jesus to be, then the difference it makes in your life will be that you will leave the world and your sins and follow Jesus as Christ the Lord. But with these particular Jews, this confession was more equivalent to a conversation piece than saving conversion. Hence, they remained also in their unbelief. In the third place, for other Jews in the crowd, they rejected Jesus in full, but on the basis of what amounted to a false assumption. Reacting to those Jews that claimed Jesus to be the Christ, these Jews retorted in verses 41 and 42, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Since Jesus had come from Galilee as far as his upbringing was concerned, and many Jews apparently knew this about him even there in Jerusalem, then they made the assumption that he couldn't be the Christ because he had no lineage to David by either blood or the location of his birth. As far as they were concerned, without any formal investigation concerning where Jesus really came from, they dismissed him without exception. And yet this conclusion they made concerning Jesus was nothing but mere conjecture. And this betrayed two things about these particular Jews. On the one hand, their question, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
That question was a prejudicial smear on Galileans. You see, Jews from Jerusalem looked down their noses on Jews from Galilee. To be from Galilee is to be from the sticks. So surely the Christ is way too sophisticated to descend from the backwoods, as it were. On the other hand, though, these Jews betrayed a real hypocrisy in their dismissal of Jesus since they refused to pursue a fair and proper investigation concerning who Jesus really is and where he really descended. They were correct in what they claimed concerning the human lineage and birthplace of the Christ, but it was a claim without real conviction. If they had been truly looking for the promised Messiah, then they would have been taking what they rightly knew the Scripture said concerning the Davidic lineage of the Christ and his place of birth and matching that up with whatever they could find out about Jesus. But they didn't care because they were not looking, truly looking for the Messiah to come. They were hypocrites, which manifested their unbelief. In the fourth and final place, we see other Jews who just wanted to take Jesus by physical force. In verse 44, we read some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. For these Jews, they clearly had no patience to consider anything concerning Jesus worthy of the truth. His claims and clear-cut invitation to eternal redemption was in their mind so offensive that there was only one solution to make. Arrest Jesus and shut him up for good. However, despite their eagerness to cut Jesus off physically, John reminds us once again that it wasn't God's timing for such force to be applied to his son. But no one, John says, no one laid hands on him. Everything surrounding Jesus and the steps he took toward the cross were all under the immediate sovereign control of God. But the primary point of verses 40 through 44 is to demonstrate the mass confusion among the crowds in their reaction to Jesus, a confusion which John tells us in verse 43 created a division among the people over Jesus. The word division is the Greek term schisma, which indicates party factions among the people. And that's exactly what we see happening here in our text. The people were dividing among themselves into their own little camps, asserting who they believed Jesus was, yet all of their conclusions leaving them in unbelief rather than bringing them to true conversion in Jesus Christ. So there was then the crowd in their confusion. But in our next perspective we see there were the guards in their curiosity. Reading verses 45 and 46, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. While the crowds were troubled in their own confusion over Jesus, the chief priests and Pharisees had sent by official orders 
the officers who were in fact religiously trained Levites to arrest Jesus and bring him to the Jewish leaders. But when these temple guards returned to the Jewish leaders empty-handed, all they could say in response to the Jewish leaders was, no one ever spoke like this man. This is quite a claim these men were making concerning our Lord. While there's no indication that they received Jesus as their Messiah, yet by what they heard proceed from his mouth, they did not outright reject him like the Jewish authorities. A strange curiosity seems to have emerged in their hearts concerning Jesus. It's as if their exclusive claim that no one ever spoke like Jesus implied an inquisitive interest in wanting to hear him again and know more of what he's teaching. Well, this is obviously how the Pharisees interpreted the report of these officers since they reacted in verse 47, Have you also been deceived? In other words, have you been led astray as well? The Pharisees were scolding these temple guards over what they saw, understand this, over what they saw as a gross lack of discernment on the part of these men who were Levites and thus formally trained in the traditions of the elders, which was the standard measure of everything religious in Judaism. But in the face of all that training and what they'd been taught to believe, yet after hearing Jesus speak, they didn't know what to do with him. Clearly, the grace and power of his words left their hands tied and made them feel quite incapable of doing anything against him. The words of Jesus had obviously reached these men to the point of stirring in them a curiosity in wanting to possibly know more than even what they had already heard. But from the curiosity of the, guard, of, of the guards and the confusion in the crowd, the last perspective John gives us as to the reaction people had toward Jesus is that there were the Pharisees in their contempt. There were the Pharisees in their contempt. Reading verses 47 through 52. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Perhaps no group among the Jewish religious leaders hated Jesus more than the Pharisees. As the epitome of the proverbial scoffer, these Jews despised and mocked everything Jesus said and did. And when our Lord rebuked them directly, it only hardened their hearts even more to do everything in their power to destroy Jesus permanently. In short, the Pharisees represent the worst 
kind of unbeliever. The worst kind of unbeliever. You say, well, what is that? It's this. Religious, self-righteous, and hypocritical in the most excessive manner. That's the worst kind of unbeliever. The worst kind. So here in verses 47 through 52, John now turns our attention to how the Pharisees were reacting to the influence they clearly perceived Jesus was having over many people in Jerusalem. And their reaction was nothing but utter contempt. In the first place, as noted in the previous point, they scolded the temple guards for their apparent marvel at what Jesus taught. Not only do they chide the temple guards for what they interpret as being led astray, but they go further by arrogantly posturing themselves in contrast to the temple guards as beyond such deception. In verse 48, they boast, Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? These words are dripping with such smug pretension. What they insinuate by these words is that if Jesus was really the Christ of the living God, then they would have been the first, the first to recognize who he was. Yet, because they don't recognize him as the Messiah, well, then there's there's no way he can be. The Pharisees were so full of themselves as these elitist know-it-alls. They were therefore convinced in their pride that There was no way they would ever be led astray like these poor, pathetic temple guards. In the second place, they dismissed the crowds as nothing but the riffraff of society who know nothing about the law. In verse 49 we read, But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Hearing the obvious reports and commentary coming from the crowds and their reaction to Jesus only incensed the Pharisees even more. But with the wave of their hand, as it were, as if to say, well, what do you expect? They disregard and repudiate the majority of the Jewish population as being nothing but spiritual blockheads. But even worse... They charge them as accursed or better under God's curse and thereby given over to a strong delusion by believing even the remotest thing positive concerning Jesus. And again, what we see here in the Pharisees is the the breathtaking pomposity of overinflated egos who think they could never be wrong. In the third place, they even berate one of their own as foolish in his attempts to treat Jesus with fairness. Reading verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. It had been 18 months since Nicodemus had gone to Jesus on that fateful night recorded back in John chapter 3. And here in John 7, he surfaces again, but as somewhat of a different man than he was before concerning the Lord Jesus. John the Apostle does not indicate that a true conversion has taken place as of yet in Nicodemus, but the fact that he would defend Jesus and seek for him a fair hearing among the Jewish authorities proves at least that God's grace had been working in this man. That is, working in him enough that he would publicly square himself against the entire Pharisaical party. But how did the rest of the Pharisees respond to Nicodemus? How did they respond to one of their own? In verse 52, they snap back with jeering mockery. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Despite how fair-minded and genteel Nicodemus was in seeking to persuade his fellow Pharisees, they were having none of it. They insulted him as an unsophisticated, backwoods country bumpkin. Are you from Galilee also? And then they furthered their derision by inviting him to search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, you got to understand this. This challenge they put to Nicodemus was deliberately sarcastic and even cruel since they knew Nicodemus had the reputation, according to John 3 and verse 9, as the teacher of Israel. Oh, they knew who they were talking to. But of course, beloved, the real joke was on the Pharisees. The real joke was on the Pharisees. First of all, the scriptures do reveal that both Jonah and Nahum were from Galilee. Old Testament prophets. Second of all, and everything John records here is to the reaction of the Pharisees. Listen, it is all with biting irony. It is with such biting irony. What they castigate and mock in others is what in reality they themselves were guilty of. They were the ones deceived. They were the ones who, who actually didn't know the scriptures since they missed who the scriptures were pointing to, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And further, they were the ones who were actually accursed by God. Don't forget. Listen. Don't forget the sevenfold condemnation which the Lord Jesus Christ calls down on the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Calling them out as hypocrites, as a brood of vipers, as blind guides, as whitewashed tombs. It was the Pharisees who were under the real curse. But, 
as the Bible teaches us, particularly in Proverbs, with sinners like these men, proverbial scoffers, no matter how plain the truth is and how tangible the proof is to the truth of Christ, their hatred and arrogance bars them from ever hearing and receiving Jesus as their Savior and following Him as their Lord. Understand, with these kind of sinners, they would rather have death over life. They would rather have death over life. That is the level of their pride. That is the extent of their arrogance. It is the worst example of how total, how total one's sinful depravity can really be. Indeed, what we see in the Pharisees is exactly the kind of sinner we just saw a moment ago in Psalm 36, 1 through 4. That kind of sinner. Well, in closing our study, let me leave you this morning with two big takeaways that can serve as helpful lessons for us all. Number one, wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, no one will have a neutral response. Wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, no one will have a neutral response. This is clearly what we have seen in the present passage in John 7 as to how the people reacted to Jesus and his saving invitation. But the same holds just as true today when the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed in all its truth. Christ in him crucified, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but to those who are effectually called, whether Jews or Greeks, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. The point of this truth in our present lesson is that no sinner is left with indifference when they come face to face with the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel cuts and divides wherever it goes, bringing some to faith in Christ while leaving the rest in unbelief. But no one will be left neutral. No one. No one. Oh, you will have a response when you hear the gospel. You just need to be praying. It's a saving response. A saving response. Lesson number two. Never underestimate the grace of God reaching sinners in the darkest places during the darkest times. Thank God for this principle. Now, I want you to think about this. Even within that evil, arrogant, murderous party called the Pharisees, even within that circle, that very demonic circle, God called out one of his own given to Christ, a sinner named Nicodemus. Never underestimate God's grace to save. And while in our present text we don't see the full flower 
of God's grace blooming in Nicodemus, yet we know from the rest of the biblical record that he is truly converted to Christ in the end. But the primary point is this. I'm going to repeat this. Listen closely. We must never conclude with with haste that there can be no Christians among a body of men because the majority of them hate Christ. Now listen to that again. We must never conclude with haste that there can be no Christians among a body of men because the great majority of them hate Christ. Understand this. There is no sinner nor a group of sinners who can outmatch the sovereignty and omnipotence of God's grace in Christ to save. No sinner has the power to overpower the grace of God to save. No matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter the company they keep, no sinner can outmatch God's grace to save. When God chooses to save, my friend, you will be saved. Yes, you will be. With the eternal triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is always hope. Always hope in the darkest places during the darkest times. And we must never forget that. Never. We judge things too easily by appearances and we look at situations, we look at different communities or even nations and we say, that's it, they're done with, it's no hope. Well, you just declared yourself an atheist. Welcome to atheism. Clearly you don't believe the God of the Bible. Clearly, you don't believe what you read in the scriptures. Not only that, let me take you on to a tutorial of church history and give you example after example after example of the grace of God reaching sinners in the darkest places during the darkest times. There is always hope. Because there is always God. Do not write anyone off as hopeless. No matter how many years it has been that you have been pleading with God to save whoever this person is. Do not give up. Do not give up. God can do things that are far beyond your own comprehension. God can reach, he can reach sinners who in your estimation you have already judged are completely unreachable.
Do you remember how the early church felt about the Apostle Paul? Do you remember? Do you remember what Paul tells us in Galatians in the first two chapters when he's given, given us a, a bit of autobiography? And how the early church, how they initially felt, when they heard about his conversion, they didn't even believe it. They did not believe this man was saved. Why, even when the Lord Jesus appeared to Ananias on the day of Paul's conversion, there's Ananias in Damascus, and, and, and the Lord Jesus appears to Ananias, tells Ananias about having just saved Saul, and that Saul's going to be this great apostle of the Gentiles, and Ananias starts disputing with the Lord himself. Don't you know who this is you're talking about? Lord, are you, are you sure you've got the right man? It was that unbelievable, that unbelievable that Saul of Tarsus would be gloriously saved by the grace of God. And Saul, who would later be named Paul, he had to do a lot of convincing with a lot of the early church that he was the real deal. That God had really saved him. Why do you think he described himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 as the chief of sinners? Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom, out of whom I am chief. I'm number one. I'm at the top. The worst of the worst of the worst. And yet... You read on from there, and what Paul communicates to Timothy, which is the Holy Spirit communicating to us through Paul, if God can save a Paul, he can save anybody. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace to save. No one. So church, do not give up. Do not give up on sinners you know that may by all appearances seem beyond hope. That's not your call to make. That's not your call to make. No, our call is to obey God. And pray. Pray that God will save these sinners. That's our call. So may we be obedient and may we do so with hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the great hope that you have given us. In the omnipotence of your grace, your saving grace, in the person and work of your beloved eternal Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy Father, we thank you that truly there is no sinner beyond, beyond the reach of your arm to save.
And so, Father, we pray in response to this for those sinners in our own circle that we have prayed years that you would save. Sinners that we know are in such deep darkness. Holy Father, we pray that you will visit them in the grace and mercy and kindness of your salvation. That you will call them by your omnipotent arm out of the darkness of all their unbelief and wickedness into your marvelous light, into the kingdom of the Son of your love, that you would make them a new creation in the Lord Jesus is our earnest plea and prayer. And we pray this in earnest, Father, especially for those that are more in the public eye, especially in our government. Men and women who wear their unbelief quite deliberately on their sleeves and their blasphemies and their idolatries. And by all appearances, we could draw the conclusion, Lord, you're done with them. It's over for them. But as we've heard this morning, that is not our call to make. We pray, therefore, Holy Father, that you will save to the uttermost even those in the darkest places, in our governments, in the school systems, even in that godless entertainment world. Holy Father, we believe you and we trust you to do, to do what is impossible for man but is always possible for you. Indeed, it is not too difficult for you. When you asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? Lord, we affirm with your Old Testament prophet, your faithful servant, Lord, only you know. Because only you, Lord, have the power to make them live. And so we trust you today that you will do that in many places, in many areas, not just in our own nation, but across this world. We think of the unreached people groups in the 1040 window. And, oh, God, we pray continually that you will reach them in your sovereign, saving grace in Jesus Christ, that you will send faithful, earnest, Christ-exalting, cross-bearing, self-denying laborers into that impossible field of mission and empower them to reach the unreached. These cares, Lord, we cast on you by faith, trusting you with all our hearts. For what only our great eternal triune God can do, saving sinners to the uttermost. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.